0: Welcome to Behind the Bookshelves. My name is Richard Davis and this Abe Books podcast is dedicated to telling the stories behind books and the people who love them. Today we're learning about the Yiddish Book Centre in Amherst, Massachusetts. The Yiddish Book Centre was founded in 1980 by Aaron Lansky, a 24-year-old graduate student of Yiddish literature. He realised that many Yiddish books from the past 1,000 years were being lost and he organised a campaign to save as many as possible. The centre grew out of that campaign. Our guest is David Mazawa, who is the research bibliographer and editorial director at the Yiddish Book Centre. Welcome, David.
1: Thank you so much, Richard. It's great to be with you.
0: Uh, thank you so much for, for joining us. Um, Okay, your website, when you're describing the the mission of the center, uses the word recover. What do you mean by recovering Yiddish literature?
1: Yes, I think it it has at least two main meanings. I mean, one is really just logistical and physical, and that is the idea that, that, as you mentioned, uh, started in 1980 when our president Aaron Lansky founded the center. And that was simply to preserve as many Yiddish books that would otherwise be thrown out or disappear as possible. And, uh, and you know, he he was a student of Yiddish and he could see all around him that books were, you know, turning up on street uh, pavements and was aware that synagogues, libraries were throwing them out. other many people were throwing out their personal collections of books. And so the aim was simply to to stop those books uh, from being thrown out and from disappearing. And in the 42 years since that moment, the center has uh, saved, recovered, preserved somewhere in excess of a million and a half books. And every day, every week, Here at the center boxes turn up, often unannounced in the mail, with maybe two, five, ten, twenty Yiddish books in a box and sometimes ten boxes from the same person. Um, So there are still large numbers of books out there that are that are finding their way here. So that's one meaning. And then the other one is really a much broader uh, philosophical and cultural, uh, intellectual, journey, which is to recover the, the contents and the meaning of the books, and to, to really make them uh, meaningful and say something to the widest possible constituency. You know, what is in these books? Um, what was the meaning for the people who, who bought them originally, or, or read them in libraries, or passed them from hand to hand in a shtetl in Eastern Europe? And what do they mean now? What do they have to tell us now? And how do they relate? To our world today and, and that's really the the sort of bigger challenge i think behind the word recover
0: right so can you give us a flavor of the the breadth of the books housed in the center
1: absolutely richard and really you know think of any world culture or world civilization in any language um arabic chinese russian ukrainian you know french um, spanish whatever and the same Variety and breadth of books that you would find in those languages really are to be found in Yiddish, uh, which is to say it's an enormous literature, um, still in many cases um, little known to us. I mean, there are many writers, uh, people email inquiring about a certain writer that that's the first time I've heard of them, Um, because um, think of it this way, something like 2% of all of... um, Yiddish books out there and certainly Yiddish literature has been translated only 2% so 98% has not been translated Uh, and in many cases some books have completely disappeared so it's a literature in a constant state of being rediscovered that's one thing But there, you know, as well as fiction, there's nonfiction of absolutely every kind. There are manuals of how to speak foreign languages. There are manuals of how to assemble a radio, how to do your gymnastic exercises, um, accounting, um, how to read somebody's palm, uh, all these books in Yiddish. And then there are books about world civilization and world culture. You know, you want to read a biography of Buddha or Mohammed, and you're in Warsaw in the 1920s, there's a book in Yiddish that will enable you to do that. Um, a ton of books about world affairs, uh, translations of world literature, um, so enormous quantities of Jules Verne and Tolstoy and um, all sorts of authors in Yiddish translation, um, as well as the works of you know Marx and Freud and and einstein and and so it goes on um so really i think pretty much any subject um that you that someone would be interested in you would find books about that subject in yiddish and and often the most unexpected titles are, you know this was um, a literature a, a language of the everyday of the street um, as well as of intellectual conversation and so there are a lot of books uh, with titles like Girls, you shouldn't marry, which turns out to be uh, quite a serious guide to genetics and the idea of actually being, you know, careful about who you choose as your partner and uh, and have children with, and so on. But with that sort of catchy title, um, so these sort of self-help books, just as those sort of books are popular today, you know, were popular through the late 19th and into the 20th century in Yiddish. So you spend some of your time a bit like a bookseller going through cardboard
0: boxes of books?
1: I do, and that's really the most delightful part of my job and of working here, and you never know when you open a box what you're going to find, and it might be somebody sent some books in English or Hebrew or Russian, Um, but from the Yiddish content, um, there are a lot of things that I see for the first time. There are a lot of things that really startle and surprise me um, the other day I opened a box and there was a very serious statistical and sort of demographic and historical guide to China published in Poland in 1938. So right on the eve of the Second World War, um, a book that almost nobody reading it at that point would ever have a chance to, to get to China and discover for themselves for obvious reasons. Um, but it speaks to the the sort of very serious breadth of curiosity and intellectual engagement that, you know, Polish Jews had on the eve of the Second World War that, um, for sure, many of them could read a book like that in Polish or perhaps in Russian or in in French or whatever. But there was a sizable number um, who needed a book like that in Yiddish to satisfy their uh, curiosity about every aspect of chinese history and society and civilization and, and that's just one example um, you know books turn up constantly um, that that surprise us and and that we didn't know about before and and occasionally and actually more often than one might expect books that we discover are unique copies um, we look them up on the WorldCat database, this this database of world libraries, and we might find that there isn't a single copy out there, or perhaps there are one or two copies in in major libraries. And this is this is not an uncommon situation for uh, for, for Yiddish books because so many got thrown out, uh, and and even the most popular ones actually often uh, were, were were sort of read to pieces, shared around, and didn't didn't make it out of those communities. Uh, and so uh, it's, it's in many cases a rare um, sort of bibliographic culture. Um, but then we also have uh, books that we have in tens of thousands of copies, um, including things like um, the works of Maupassant in Yiddish translation or, uh, or one or two other. Jules Verne would be another one. Shalom Alechem, the, the author from, from whose stories Fiddler on the Roof is drawn, uh, is probably the single most um, common author that we see here because uh, sets of his books were given away as bar mitzvah presents for many years in early 20th century America, and a good many of those sets find their way to us. Um, so you know that gives you some idea, I think, of the, the range of things we see here.
0: So uh, who uses the, the Yiddish Book Centre?
1: Right. So, so people use us in a whole variety of ways. Um, and it's much broader than just the books. But, but in terms of the books, uh, we make most of our books available and always have done since the centre was founded as reading copies um, for students and translators and teachers and reading circles. Um, who who want to actually hold an original book and, and a used book. And that's, of course, many of us still love to do that. And that's, that's the same case here. Um, and we've also digitized uh, many thousands. I think it's about 12,000 books currently on our website. Those are free to read, download, print out. Uh, And people can access those, of course, and do from all over the world, Um, all sorts of people, uh, including quite a lot of Hasidic religious Jews um, who have a particular interest in in books about religious life or rabbinical figures or the history of some of these um, very intensely religious communities in in Europe. And then we have all all sorts of other resources that people can access, including our oral history archive and many, many articles and teaching resources and and other materials on our website. Uh, And then people come and they simply are curious to look around at our exhibits. We have uh, a kind of museum type space here. Really beautiful, large building uh, set in an apple orchard in Western Massachusetts. Uh, and it's a fabulous um, place to work, to visit. And so people come and they're, in many cases, very surprised by the sort of expansive scale of the center and the range of um, exhibits and things to see here. Uh, mm-hmm. We host trans, you know, conferences and meetings and talks and virtual programs. So, so it's active on a, on a very wide scale.
0: Indeed it sounds like you've gone way beyond books so what does the oral history project involve or the oral history archives you mentioned?
1: Yeah that's that's really um, now it, it encompasses uh, approximately a thousand interviews and a lot of them are in Yiddish but a lot of them are, are in English um, so partly it, it's an attempt to capture uh, in its broadest sense, this this whole world, this the world that sort of grew out of the Yiddish-speaking communities of the 19th and early 20th century. Um, so some of those interviews are people who teach Yiddish, people who are studying it, um, people who are creating in it, singers and actors and theatre practitioners. Um, and sometimes uh, they are descendants of writers. I myself am the great grandson of a Yiddish writer of the mid 20th century. And there are, there are a number of interviews with, with people like myself, um, children, grandchildren, great grandchildren of writers. Uh, you know, what was passed on of this of this culture? What came down through the family? What did we what did we how how is it meaningful to us in our childhood or as we grew up? And that's different in every case. Um, So there are interviews of of that sort. Uh, And it really preserves the sort of state of the uh, the Yiddish-speaking world as it moved around the world through the descendants of those uh, primary speakers to Australia and to Canada and South Africa and uh, Argentina and Siberia and and many other places. Uh, so So these interviews are really global uh, in nature and some of them are with children, many of them are with uh, people in their 60s, 70s, and 80s uh, and everything in between. And it's a it's a wonderful resource uh, that's used in, in teaching but it's also a wonderful place to browse. There, there, there are clips, all the interviews in Yiddish are subtitled uh, and there are, there are some wonderful stories and remarkable characters.
0: Um, can I ask a naïve question, but what is the difference between Yiddish and Hebrew? Uh,
1: they are they are related but separate languages. Uh, in many cases, they're part of the same culture. Um, there were many people who spoke or used uh, both, at least to some extent. But in its broadest terms, uh, Yiddish is the language of the home, of day-to-day working life, um, of the school, the street. Uh, and community, and yet, and Hebrew um, started out much more as a language of prayer uh, and as a sort of high-status uh, language of religion and spirituality. Uh, and, and now, of course, that's very different. I mean, Hebrew is the the the, the language in Israel, the state of Israel, and of. Uh, many Israelis around the world and in synagogue communities still. And Yiddish has sort of waned for historic reasons um, to do with uh, persecution and war and the Holocaust, but also to do with um, processes of assimilation and integration. Um, so the the sort of graph of the interaction of Yiddish and Hebrew sort of varies uh, enormously. But, but for a time, um, Yiddish was vastly... Um, more much more used than than Hebrew and there are a great range of books especially from the 19th and early 20th century that really have no counterparts in Hebrew Um, but the alphabets are broadly the same Um, Yiddish is a Germanic language Hebrew is not so uh, those are some of the 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 broad differences so over the
0: years has there been um, like a publishing center for Yiddish books was there any one region particularly strong? I mean, you mentioned uh, Yiddish-speaking people in Poland a moment ago, and then people in Australia as well. Um, or is it multiple places across the world that have p- produced these books?
1: Yes, that's a great question, and it is. Um, and we have books from um, dozens and dozens of countries, but the vast majority of what we have here. be published in new york um, and the sort of big secondary center would be poland and especially warsaw uh, at times places like vilna vilnius today or lodge or or, uh, kiev uh, moscow were, were a lot of other significant places chicago was quite a significant center so buenos aires was a very significant center uh, so it was a global industry, but it had two very big hubs, which were in the United States uh, and in Central and Eastern Europe, and especially in Poland. So, and today, what does the publishing industry look like for Yiddish readers? Uh, it's it's much more fractured today, and there's a lot of internet publishing and ebook publishing. Um, there are small Yiddish publishers in unexpected places like Sweden. Um, uh, there are still Yiddish um, publishers in in America, especially in Israel, uh, and in countries like Poland and Romania and so on. Um, but the the number of books being being produced and published is is substantially smaller than it would have been even in the 1950s 60s or 70s and dramatically smaller than it was uh before the second world war
0: right um do mainstream publishers who publish um english language books primarily like you know random house or harper collins do they translate their books into yiddish ever uh
1: that's that's unlikely i mean they're uh so there there are books there are a lot of interesting books being translated from yiddish into english and other languages currently you know french russian spanish polish whatever um books being translated into yiddish i mean there are, there have been recent editions of the little prince of moby dick uh of uh harry potter the philosopher's stone um and these are sort of um Phenomena in the Yiddish-speaking world and in our sort of circles, and and fascinating examples, but they're few and far between. Right. Um, and you know, they're they're often done really as a statement of of sort of pride in the language, and also to to enable families who who make a deliberate choice to bring up their children speaking Yiddish to have you know modern reading materials to uh, to to read together.
0: Right, I see. So, if we go back to the the box scenario that we talked mm. about at the beginning mm. what's um do you do you ever get rare books in there or sorry, older books like past the uh twentieth century older than that
1: we do um but almost never um older than the second half of the nineteenth century right. and and that's partly because you know everything that comes to us, we don't buy books, we don't go out to to auction and buy books, Um, we simply um, deal with and process what comes to us kind of naturally and organically by people who've in many cases kept their books for generations, um, can't read them themselves, but now decide the time has come to make sure they're they're saved and they have sentimental value. Um, And so the bulk of what we have is 20th century for sure. Uh, we get, you know, a trickle of books from the 1870s, 80s, and 90s, and those might be uh, storybooks. Um, typically, um, the typical storybook of the late 19th century was a tiny pocketbook uh, that was maybe 20 or 30 pages that slipped easily into your pocket. You could read it on a train or, or on a journey. Uh, it cost very little because the, the reading public for Yiddish was almost always uh, working class, poor, Um, substantially of that sort Um, but we do we do get occasional older books and often Hebrew books, Hebrew prayer books, Um, our oldest book dates from the late 17th century and we occasionally get books from the 18th and early 19th centuries but usually those are Hebrew books that people have slipped in with other things or simply they didn't realize those were not Yiddish books and they were Hebrew books um, and we do get we get a surprising number of rare books uh, and art albums, occasionally very interesting art books and we have a rare book collection that's growing uh, and that's uh, of, of world importance here but uh, we would have had many more had the policy not been a sort of revolving door policy that still is the case that we want the books to get out to new readers uh, and so we're we, we are a library and a repository but we're also... Uh, our mission has always been to actually find new readers with our books.
0: Right. Um, do you catalogue the books when they arrive? Like we do. when you
1: see a new work that you've never seen before, do you catalogue it? We do. We have a, a cataloger, um, and our, you can find records of our books on the WorldCat database, uh, and you can see exactly what we have. At a glance, and any anything that comes in that isn't in our catalogue, we we add to it. Yes, right. So you must have the most remarkable database
0: of Yiddish books.
1: We we do. You know, there are there are large uh, libraries at places like Harvard and Library of Congress, New York Public Library, um, the YIVO Institute in New York, and and some others. Um, that have been amassing, you know, Yiddish as well as other collections for decades. Um, and that's not really been our purpose, um, although, you know, we're, we're much more conscious of that now. Um, so our collection is very important, but it, it's, it's not as a, a sort of rare book. Our core book collection is, is not of the size of those, but it does have um, a surprising number of unique and extremely rare volumes.
0: Okay. Uh, also, when I was browsing your website, I came across the name of Steven Spielberg.
1: Um, yes, he, he his grant, his major grant, uh, funded our digital library uh, in its early stages and was a transformative grant in terms of um, enabling us to put thousands of Yiddish books online. Uh, and I think Yiddish is probably the single most in terms of proportion of, of of books online is probably the most widely available online literature of pretty much any in the world at this point. Well, wow, that's quite a powerful supporter to have in your corner. Yes, well, I mean, you know he 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 saw the, the logic of putting the books online um, as as we did, and that that was a transformative process because uh, you know anybody anywhere in the world, with access to a phone or a computer can can find 12,000 of our books instantly.
0: Wow, that's amazing. And the campus, so I saw some pictures of it too. It, it looks amazing and and actually does look rather like a village. Would I, would I be right in making that assumption?
1: Yes, it, it, it's absolutely uh, the case. So the brief to the architect was to... Uh, to to um, be influenced by and reflect and engage with the architecture of um, the shtetl communities of Central and Eastern Europe and and he he did that beautifully and so when you when you approach the building it does look like a series of sort of houses joined together of wooden wooden structures um, but then when you step in you step into this vast open space filled with light. Um, and it's a sort of magical illusion that he he was able to create that space, but preserve the external appearance of of a sort of traditional village. And and it's a it's a really magical building to work in. Um, it's 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 a considerable uh, piece of architecture.
0: Yes, it sounds the most um, remarkable place.
1: Uh, so we're surrounded by apple trees, and you know mountain range in the distance and birds of prey wheeling over the mountains it's it's very idyllic and beautiful
0: (laughs) yes it sounds like a wonderful place um one final question then david which we ask to all of our guests and that is um what book or books are you currently reading
1: ah okay so um i've just started um a translation that's come our way of a book about the spanish civil war written by a journalist called schneiderman a polish jewish journalist who was on the front line of the spanish civil war in the 1930s um as was his um brother-in-law the photographer chim uh, who was one of the founders of magnum press uh, his real name was david seymour uh, or he, the name he took was David Seymour, that he's better known as. Um, he was, you know, along with Robert Kapper and Cartier Bresson, one of the founders of, of Magnum Press. But And uh, Schneiderman was his brother-in-law and wrote uh, a terrific journalist and sent reports back from the front lines of the Spanish Civil War to his newspaper, a Yiddish newspaper in Poland. Um, they appeared as a book called The War in Spain, which is extremely scarce. Uh, that came out in 1938. And this, uh, it's a terrific book. Um, he's a really great writer. And this is a translation um, for the first time into English um, that I'm reading with enormous interest. Uh, and can I have a second book? Yes,
0: more <laughs> Um uh,
1: So another book on, on my shelf is called The Murders of Moisesville, uh, The Rise and Fall of the Jerusalem of South America. That's a new book by... An Argentinian writer called Javier Sinay. S-I-N-A-Y. Um, it's a personal story involving his great grandfather, and it's the story behind the series of uh, mysterious murders that, that hit a community of newly arrived immigrants from Russia who had, uh, whose journey had been paid for as part of a big land settlement exercise in late 19th century Argentina. And these were dirt poor immigrants sort of dropped in the middle of nowhere to create agricultural communities. Um, Fascinating story in itself. But his book focuses on this one colony called uh, Moisesville, Moses Town, which is still there in Argentina. And and their encounters with local gauchos and the sort of tensions, economic and cultural and social that that led to uh, um, 20 or so murders of their of their ranks in these early years but but Javier is a wonderful journalist who who has been there teases out the story through interviews archive research and so on and and it's a great read the murders of Moisesville
0: brilliant thank you uh, can I ask one more question um how did you get there how did you end up at the Yiddish book center
1: yes well i i i um, been involved with the Book Centre for at least 30 years now, I guess. Um, I I left a job with BBC News, World News, where I was a, a program editor for many years um, in current affairs, international affairs. Um, and while working at the BBC, I'd always written about Yiddish, um, had a strong interest in Yiddish. I'd bought books from the Book Centre. Uh, I was co-editing their magazine with Aaron Lansky, our president. Um, he invited me to do that. I was on the board of the center for a time, and then five years ago, um, a job became available, and and I, I was looking for a change at that point. And it really was a sort of one in one in a million kind of job that was perfectly suited to me, and that's how I found myself here. Wow, what a tremendous
0: opportunity! L- like you say, <laughs> a one in a one in a million chance to think, yes, that's my thing,
1: and I can go and live in a lovely part of the world, too. Yes, I mean, it was really, you know, it's a sort of ringside seat. at something I find fascinating and very meaningful, and I and I learn every day, um, and that's that's a remarkable thing to be able to say of a job, too.
0: Brilliant,
1: yes. Um,
0: I can totally relate to that, too. All right, that's all we have time for today. Uh, I want to say a special thank you uh, to David Mazawa, who is the uh, research bibliographer and editorial director at the Yiddish Book Center in Amherst, Massachusetts. Uh, thank you, David, for joining us.
1: Uh, a real pleasure. Thanks so much for inviting me, Richard. Thank you. Uh,
0: my name is Richard Davis, and you've been listening to an ABE Books podcast, and we'll see you all again soon.